Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello, hello from Portland. And special guest today is Maximo Mussini. Yeah, from your Did world. I get the last name right? Perfect. Welcome. Thank you. And Maximo, would you mind introducing yourself for those who may not be familiar with you yet? Yeah, I'm a software developer. I've been working professionally for the past 10 years, and I've done a bunch of everything. I started doing mobile development back on Android. I think it was 2012. Then I did web development, full stack, backend, everything. And and I think at one point, a friend of mine introduced me to, to Vue, and I was hooked from the beginning, been working with it in every project that I can ever since. And recently I got, I had the opportunity to start collaborating, uh, building something open source on top of you, which is EOS, a library that we're going to be talking about today. That's awesome. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more, than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. What? So a lot of times when we're talking with developers, they tend to start with something like PHP or, or some backend technology, and then they move into more general web development, get into JavaScript from there. But you said you started with mobile development. What interested you in mobile development first? Was it specifically you wanted to make apps? Yes, primarily. Also, I was working uh, with a few colleagues who started a consulting business around mobile applications. Back in the day, it was even more popular, I think, because it was during the, the boom, right? Everyone wanted to build a mobile application. And that's how I, I started. I like using apps, but it's, it wasn't like a personal drive that got me into mobile development, which is why when I transitioned to mostly web development, I loved it. And actually, from a tooling perspective, web development is so much more enjoyable. I love being able to iterate faster and even using TypeScript, the, the cycles are just so much faster than waiting for compiled. So. But I, you know, my first job was using C sharp. So I, I also love that word, statically typed languages, Kotlin, all, all that stuff. I think it's good stuff. But I, I enjoyed that uh, JavaScript as well and its flexibility. And when I started doing backend development, I started with Ruby, uh, which is also not PHP. That's interesting that you have all that experience on the backend. I, I personally started with PHP, which is why I use that as an example. But yeah. That's really cool. What specifically drove you from from doing something like C-sharp into more dynamic languages like JavaScript and Ruby? Um, was there something there that you... I mean, obviously, JavaScript is the language of the front end. But is there something that you found in dynamic languages that was missing in static-typed languages? Or um, was it just following interest? What led you there? It was mostly following projects. So I, I worked for many years on the software... Uh, it's like the health tech industry. 
and worked on a huge Rails monolith for about seven years. And it was built mostly using Ruby. So it was a necessity to, to get familiar with it. And it's a language that I love. I, I've written a bunch of uh, libraries for Ruby. And I think it's the language where I've written most lines of code at this point. And, and also, it's like the Nexus. Because I, I like front-end development, but I was also very familiar with back-end development. That's what got me to build the integration that I did for BitJS in Ruby, called BitRuby. So I think it has to do with that. Oh, that was that, you. Yeah, that, that I'm like one, one foot on each world, you know, a little bit of Ruby, a little bit of JavaScript. I like everything. Nice. I was actually just experimenting with that. I didn't pay attention to where I was pulling stuff. Uh, <laughs> that works really well. I was, I, it was really easy to get set up with Vite and Ruby at the same time. Yeah, that, my intention with, with that library is to see how far I can go without having to dedicate time to supporting it. So I, I put a lot of effort on trying to get it, trying to get the setup right, like have an install script that works in most situations, uh, that configures things out of the box uh, for Rails projects in a way that most users don't even know what they are doing. It just works. And I've been improving the documentation to, to achieve that. I'm trying to do the same thing with, with this, this other project, EOS trying to but but it's still early stages that the other one bit ruby is uh, more mature sure now what specifically you said that when you were first introduced to view it really it hooked you almost immediately yeah yeah what is it about view that you like so much i think what and talking about the documentation what what got me into it was that the docs for for view 2 were so well written like written for humans, it was a guide as much as a documentation. You had the API documentation for, for every method that you could possibly want to use. But at the same time, the, the way that it was written, it was almost like a book, right? So you go chapter by chapter, and you start learning about how it works. You learn how it works internally, how the, the reactivity works. So I loved that from the beginning. And also at the time, we were assessing whether we wanted to migrate. We had a front-end in Angular 1 and jQuery, a bit of everything. And we were assessing whether to migrate to React or to Vue. So I did two prototypes, and we compared them. And the difference was very notorious, you know, like... View already solved styling, for example, with scope styles, out of the box solution, very well supported, will never go away, right? Zero runtime. Whereas in React, you, you didn't have conventions. You could use whatever you wanted, right? Same thing with the router, same thing with data sharing mechanism, which is Vuex for, for Vue, for React. At the time, it was, it was Redux. So, you know, I just noticed in React, we had to glue a bunch of things together to, to get to where we wanted, which is work on the application that we were building. And with Vue, everything was just very cohesive, very well designed to, to work together, all these libraries, the Vue Router, Vue X. And also, I, because we were coming from Angular, that something that for some people, uh, you know, it's not something they enjoy, but the templating system in Vue, it was so familiar to us, you know. Instead of NGF, it was just BF. Uh, instead of NG4, it was before, and everything was the same. 
except better, you know, no, no digest cycles. Everything was just reactive. The way that Evan implemented the reactivity system, the initial one in, in BU2, I think was very, very clever because this, this was before proxies. And, but it was almost transparent for the user. It's like your objects are being observed and you don't even need to care how, right? I thought it was just amazingly designed and it worked really, really well in practice. We, we really had no problems with it. And, and it's great to see, you know, the next iteration, View 3, I think it's going to be great. I'm, I'm using it already uh, for the past year. And I think it's really, really nice just moving into the TypeScript w- world, you know, and, and having your templates, templates type checked, all, all that good stuff that maybe was missing from React and uh, other frameworks. But I feel now it has, as always, it's a very ba- balanced framework. It's always trying to cover as much ground as possible without, you know, without letting the user figure things out on their own. I mean, you can you can go out of your way and use yeah. any library, but it's like very prescriptive. I yeah, I really like that about Vue. Yeah, I, re- I really like how Vue provides you with those good default libraries, like Vuex, for example, where it works exactly how you need it to in order to do global state management. And if you're just using the default, that's fine. But if you want to use something like Pinya, that's great too, because it's available. But you don't feel this need to make a decision. The decision has been made for you. And if you feel like changing it, you can. Right. And I feel like in many ways, Vite and Vue CLI are kind of sitting in the same place right now. Uh, Vue CLI up until now has been the default that the Vue docs have directed you to once you're ready to build a full single page application. But that's slowly moving over to Vite according to Evan Yu, but you still have the flexibility if you want to use Nuxt, if you want to use UCLI, if you want to use Quasar, if you want to use something else, you still have that option. And I really like that approach Yeah. so that the community still is empowered to, to make changes and invent its own solutions, but there is at least a basis to be working off of. Yeah, I completely agree. I think one of the exciting things about Beat is that now it, it has brought all these communities together, right? Because the tooling is generic and it, it can be reused with different frameworks to, to build different kinds of applications, uh, single-page applications, multi-page applications, static site uh, renderers. It's just a very flexible ESM-compatible tool that can be used and abused in many different ways. So the great thing about it is that now, you know, framework authors don't need to reinvent the tooling part they can build on top of beat and and you know enjoy all the modules that the community provides things like you know uh, utility first css frameworks all that stuff you just find a plugin that works in beat and you're done and it doesn't matter if you're using spelt or react or preact or solid it just works so i think that's pretty exciting right Yeah, I've been writing a lot in Elm recently on my side projects, um, and it works perfectly with Vite too. So I, like, I was building a a single page application with Elm. Suddenly, I needed PWA support. I was able to just grab a Vite plugin, move on with life. I don't even have to think about it. Just just the the flexibility of bringing those two ecosystems together is just so nice. Yeah, yeah. Now that you mentioned it, I, I want to finally give Elm a try. I've been looking at it for years. 
but I I never got into it. Maybe now it's time. If it's as easy as adding it to to an existing beat project, I think the the barrier is so low now. You know. Oh, absolutely. I definitely recommend giving it a shot. Cool. So let's dive into Ela's a little bit more. Since we've we've been dancing around this topic of Veet and all the tooling that we can have, I'd like to explore this option. And before you start describing it yourself, I found Ela's as I was going on Twitter, as one does. I was scrolling through, and I found the announcement of of a recent update. I don't remember which one it was specifically, unfortunately, but I I saw this announcement of Ela's. It's like, oh, what's this? This looks interesting. It's clearly a French word. It must be a view framework. So I looked into it and. It, was, it provides static site generation for partial hydration. And I'm reading this and thinking, oh, this is Astro from a view perspective. And then it turns out in, in your FAQ, that's actually exactly what it is. And I had recently, when I, when I saw this, I had recently finished a rewrite of my site from Nux to Astro. And this really got me interested because, it, like I said, it's, it's a view version of Astro. So it's coming from a view dominant perspective, but still provides the flexibility and still provides the partial hydration. So it really interested me as another option in this space of static site generation and partial hydration that's that's been coming out recently. So really excited to be talking about it with you. Would you mind yourself just talking a little bit about how you came to the project, what it is, what in, what was your inspiration for building this? And before we go too much farther, can we spell it? We're saying Elis, but how do we how are we spelling Elis since it's French? Oh yes. <laughs> Yeah, let's uh, get the name story out of the way. So, view is the French word for view, as in your MVC, mode controller view. And beat is the French word for fast or quickly. So, I was looking for a name for this project and I was like, all right, I'm just going to grab a French word. So, eels is the French word for islands. So, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. French-speaking folks can correct us, but it's spelled I-L-E-S. So in Spanish, Iles, and in English, Iles. I don't know. You can pronounce it as you want. Just like beat, people say it in different ways, and I think that's fine. As long as you can Google for it and read the documentation, it should be fine. So this project, I was trying out Astro, as you mentioned. I also ran across it on Twitter and I thought, you know, this is really, really cool because I had run across this problem of partial hydration several times. And it was almost like a crutch in, in certain projects. You would be, you would be manually injecting the interactive application on top of a render site. And this is error prone. So I was interested in, in this space of, you know, what if the a framework can do it automatically for you and get it right every time at like no bugs or or you know missing elements could couldn't hydrate so when i saw astro i i tried it immediately and what happened is that back then and i think it still is it was based on snowpack but i had been using beat for for the past 6 months back then so December last year, I started using Beat. Very excited, started writing plugins for it. I, I created a Ruby integration called Beat Ruby. So really enjoying the experience that's, that these plugins provided. For example, Windy CSS uh, for styling. So utility-first framework works really, really fast. So interested in just 
keeping the, the iteration cycle really low uh, and at the same time be able to bring these tools with me to any project that I go since beat is framework generic and and I was underwhelmed by snowpack I felt like it was too slow in comparison and and also it was very astro was greener uh, back then so I had some paper cuts when I tried it and I decided you know I want something like BeatPress with partial hydration like Astro. So how about prototyping this and see how far I can get? So that's how you'll start. It's like, I want Astro running on BeatJS. And I want some of the nicer aspects of BeatPress, that is to make from matter available very easily. And also some ideas that I had are um, from using Jekyll, a Ruby library for static static sites generation for many years. It has some nice things that come out of the box, you know, site-wide data, access to front matter, things that you typically need when you're rendering a static site. And as I experimented, and it is such a flexible tool, I was able to, to get things like, you know, Globe import, a collection of files, be able to access the front matter directly as objects, that kind of stuff. So it started to take shape. And at one point I decided, you know, this is, this can be something really cool. It can be a decent competitor to 11T or frameworks like that for, for static sites generation. And, and what, what got me really excited about it is that you can, leverage all these frameworks, all these components, like Svelte components or SolidJS components, and provide interactivity for them. But you don't have to pay for the rest of the components that are static. And so the premise is the following. Uh, Let me simplify. The premise is the following. You use components to build the entire site, but you don't have to worry about bundle size for the parts that are static. So certain things are configuration-based. For example, if there's a next post, you will render a next link. If there's no next post, you, you don't re- render that. Or, you know, if the article doesn't have a table of contents, you don't render a table of contents. So why pay for for that component if it's not going to be used? But the decision is static in a way. And in static size generation, this means at build time, right? So it was nice to be able to achieve this where you're only paying for the JavaScript that needs to be interactive in the user's browser, and the rest is just gone. And something that I really, really liked, and I think it's a great innovation, I first saw it in Astro, and it might have been invented before, but this idea of adding a directive that specifies which components are going to stay interactive and let the framework deal with it, I think that's that's just great. So that's kind of where I started with EOS. I was can I get that implemented? And once I, I got through that, I just moved on with the rest of the aspects, which are more nuanced. And it's just like, all right, I want something that is really, really easy to use. If a beginner can write a site on EOS, I've accomplished what I wanted, which is you know a, a very simple to use static site generator, but at the same time, a very powerful and, and capable one you know, that you can use for apps as well. That's awesome. I, I also appreciate that, that you were trying to solve a problem that you yourself had of, I want to use these two things put together. And, and that's really what drove this project. But I, don't know, I, I really like this approach of partial hydration for, for building a static site. 
So I feel like when when I was starting to get into this the the static site generation, it, I was the first one I actually worked with was Gatsby and then Gridsome. And both of those are very much you're using the framework. It may be static at one point, but eventually it, it fully hydrates and you just go on using either React or Vue. And I really like this approach of having this this island's architecture of only pieces and of your site have that extra reactivity and that extra JavaScript being loaded for them because otherwise you can just use standard HTML and CSS. Right. And it looks like you're you're using the same syntax that Astro has. So client visible, client load. Yeah, exactly. The same. Um, because I'm I'm not trying to hide that I I was inspired by, by Astro. So I thought let's just use the same syntax so that people can use the same knowledge and move across frameworks as they want. For example, I'm also using a, an API called get static paths for the dynamic paths, right? So that comes from Next.js. So people that are familiar with that API can expect the same thing when they are using Eagles. And same thing for, for anything. You know, I'm, I'm also going to lean very heavily on, on the Noxt APIs. Um, I'm, I'm going to soon add a few helpers for async data and stuff like that. I'm going to try to respect like the behavior and, and naming uh, of these very familiar APIs because I think once you once you achieve a nice API, it's nice that it works everywhere, which is kind of like you know functional programming. The method is called map. It works in Ruby. It works in JavaScript. It works in Elixir. You know, I think that sort of thing benefits everyone because even if you are not familiar with you or with the framework, you you already have some elements to grab onto to start learning and don't feel as intimidated. It's like, oh, this looks kind of familiar. So that's that's what I'm aiming for. So yeah, the the client directive syntax is exactly the same. Same strategies too. Except I added, I think, a strategy. It's a, a bit more technical, but it's for injecting non-view components on, on view pages. So, for example, if you want to render an spelled component, mm. maybe because you already had written it, but it's not going to be interactive. For now, rather than try to detect it, w- which would be slower, you add this client non-directive that might go away in the future. But for now, I'm also trying to, to ensure that the framework doesn't have a lot of overhead when transforming files, but probably not going to be required for markdown pages because I'm I'm going to rewrite uh, the compiler how the the MDX is transformed to to view components. So since it might go through all the components, it's an opportunity to automatically detect components from other frameworks and and not require directives. Small stuff. Sorry, got into this rabbit hole. Oh, no. I was just, I was actually, before you even started on that, thinking in Astro, they have this concept of the the dot Astro file, where that's where you bring in your custom components. If you want to use React, if you want to use Vue, if you want to use Svelte, and you can only do that in the dot Astro file, but you can't actually import a Vue component inside of a React component without making it work in a very React way. Exactly. But yeah. you're working with Vue as the base, so you needed this special uh, syntax, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean that one is a small one because in Beat you can always transform the file, so you can expand the syntax of what a view single file component is in weird and exciting ways. For example, you can you can use components that are 
not really view components are just JavaScript files. So like renderless components. So it's an area to explore. But for now, I wanted to keep things simple. So it's like if you're using non-view components, always other directive. I, I think it's it's pretty simple. Also, I think especially in the beginning, most people that are going to be drawn to this framework are view developers mostly. So they won't use much of the other components unless they are trying to reduce the bundle size for the ship JavaScript. So they are going to use it with one of the hydration strategies. So for example, let's say that I have a page and I would like to have an interactive search bar. Then I can write it on using Svelte instead of you and just use that component inside my view page or layout other directive that says, you know, for example, hydrate it when it's visible. And in that way, what you're shipping is just an spelled component with its very small runtime instead of, for example, the, the entire view runtime. Or, for example, one of, I'm, I'm not supporting React in EOS. And it's mostly because React is, can do most of what you would do anyway. And React has such a huge bundle size, right? So you would typically not want to use it for for islands, but technically it's possible. You know, if people request it, it's it's possible to add it in the future. But most of the time, you would just use React Compat and replace React with React in any dependency, and, and that's it. In fact, that's what I'm doing. For example, for doc search in the documentation website, it's a React component, but you just re- replace React with React and, and you are able to, to include it directly on your view layout. Works really nicely. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have this situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Yeah, I noticed that React was left off. I assumed, like you said, that Preact was covering the case, but I hadn't thought about its bundle size specifically. That's interesting. It's huge. It never, you know, compared yeah. to compared to all frameworks uh, that, that we've been talking about, 
React, SolidJS, Svelte, Vue. React has the biggest bundle size. So if you are doing partial hydration, it's because you already care about minimizing the amount of JavaScript. If not, there are plenty of SSR frameworks that are very capable and, and can achieve the same benefits, SEO uh, or first time to, to render metrics improvements, right? So if you're using partial hydration, it's because you want to minimize JavaScript size. You might say that you wouldn't even want to use Vue, which has a 50K runtime. But, and this is something that I wrote about in the documentation. Bundle size is not the most important aspect when you're making a decision. There are a bunch of, a bunch of things to consider. And development and maintenance costs are very important. For example, I, I, could, I could try to replace a Goya log search with a custom component written in React or SolidJS, trying to minimize bundle size. I might spend an entire day or who knows, a week, I don't know, writing that component, ensuring it works in mobile, it works in desktop, it works in Windows. The shortcuts work in every operating system. Uh, you know, it uses, it, it makes the proper amount of requests to Algolia. It, it caches the results, it uses local storage. So you can go on and on and just to shave off a few bytes. But in the end, the, the decision that I made is I'm, I'm just going to reuse this beautifully written component in my site. And yes, it's going to be a bit heavier, but it's not crucial, right? The, it's a documentation site, for example. So the entire content uh, is there in the styling without any JavaScript enabled. And the search bar is just an addition on top of that. So it's not that important. And, and also what's beautiful about Astro or EELS or, or any of these partial hydration frameworks is that the, the page loads and these components were pre-rendered during build time. So for example, the search button or whatever kind of, for example, the sidebar, any interactive element that you have uh, has been pre-rendered. So if it's not critical, the most important aspect maybe is uh, the visual flare, right? Like this flash of content when it appears, for example, which is what it would happen if you were, let's say, have a Jekyll site that will inject this search bar. So that goes away. So the extra milliseconds that it might take to load a few more kilobytes of, of JavaScript for that search bar is completely acceptable, you know. It will depend on your use case for sure, which is why it provides, uh, EOS provides support for all these different frameworks. It's like, it, you can also use no framework, right? You can choose to inject, you know, two kilobytes of JavaScript that are going to do custom code. That's completely a possibility. In fact, there's like a, spe a special syntax for injecting little lines of JavaScript on your view components that also have convenient access to the elements. For example, you might want to render a view component and then inject some JavaScript that will work on the render content. It's something that, that happens occasionally, for example, toggling sidebars and stuff like that. So thinking about this concept of partial hydration a little bit more, I, we've talked about it a bit on the show recently, especially, like I said, I migrated my site. I'm using partial hydration just to enable a couple bits of JavaScript, right? What are some, we, we talked about also your, your search bar. What are some common use cases that you see for wanting to only render a bit of the UI using JavaScript as opposed to doing a full single page application? I feel like 
a lot of developers today, when they approach Vue or they approach React or something like or Svelte, they're coming at it from the perspective of, I need to write everything in JavaScript. Everything needs to be handled this way. Otherwise, I don't have control of the site. How would you recommend people look at partial hydration from that perspective? I think that urge to write everything with the same framework uh, comes also from from this time before ESM, right? Before ESM was available in most browsers, the load order of a script was a problem, right? It's why you would try to bundle everything together. That way it works for sure. You know, the bundler is going to figure out the proper order. Uh, that also brings other problems such as too large of a bundle size. So until everything gets to the browser, nothing will execute. So partial hydration has a few benefits. By by being able to use, for example, EOS uses Rollup because it uses Beat under the hood. So it will compile each island as an entry point. So Rollup will take care of optimizing how the, the bundle is created. But most of the time, what you get is very optimal in the sense that as soon as that component is available to render, it will render in, as soon as it's loaded. It, maybe the, the, the HTML page hasn't finished rendering yet, but that part uh, rendered in as soon as the JavaScript gets there, it's going to execute and, and it's going to become interactive. So this technique works very well with streaming. And if you are using a provider that uses HTTP streaming, then you would be able to get that benefit. Let's say that I have a very, very huge HTML page, very long, and I have an interactive element on the top of the page. As soon as that element loads and the JavaScript gets to the browser, it's going to become interactive. So that that's one of the advantages versus full page hydration, because until the full page is complete, uh, some frameworks are not able to, to provide interactivity, right? You have to have the full content so you can do a diff and then inject the JavaScript where it should be. So I would say for, for large pages, it has a very clear advantage in that sense. And also compared to traditional server-side rendering, the advantage is that it's easier to guarantee load order, you know, uh, because it, it gets injected right after the HTML where it will live or that has been pre-rendered. It has very strong guarantees in terms of execution order. It's going to execute when it should be. Um, and and also these the the strategies that, which come from Astro, I think it's it's very clever, a very clever technique because it just gives you more flexibility on when to load that JavaScript or if to load it at all. This is something that I that I implemented a few weeks ago, but if it doesn't hydrate, you don't even download the JavaScript, sort of. It, it can be preloaded, but it won't execute, right? It won't be on that page. It won't be live unless it's needed. And also browsers, uh, like on mobile devices or slow connections, browsers may choose not to preload. So basically, you're paying for the JavaScript that, that needs to be interactive, which I think it's the way it should be. So I think, Lindsay, to get to your question, I think the typical use case that I think of for something like this is like a brochure site with a contact form, 
or, you know, something where you're doing something maybe on one page that has a little bit of interactivity and you want to throw something in, but everything else is just fine being server rendered because it's not going to change. Basically, or the, the other case, I guess, the other way to put it, I guess, is maybe where you so- don't have somebody logging in. You know, you got a logged in user and you got to keep track of maybe they're changing things in their account that shows up on the site or something. It's got to be dynamic. So, you know, there's other cases. Maybe we have a little to use the design island on a page where you've got something you want to click and, and maybe it uses an XHR request to bring in some data. I would imagine where you could use fetch. Like I, I was noticing in the in the... The documentation, for example, that there is a, um, you can have a script, you know, just basically a standard HTML script tag somewhere. And then within there, you can, you know, do what you need to do. So anyway, that's, that's my thought for something like this for a typical use case with, you know, 90% server side render with a little HTML. Yeah. But like for e commerce sites, for example, you could want to have, like you said, see the, the user logged in with its little icon, let's say on the navbar. That part will need to be interactive, probably, at least if you're using static site generation. But most of the site, let's say that you have a catalog, for example, most of the site is going to be static. So you could choose to use partial hydrations only for the shopping cart, right? And download it only if the user clicks on something to, to purchase. So you could have, you could support a very high traffic amount of traffic compared to server-side rendering. And, you know, you are only, you're only paying for, for the interactions, right? So if, if the user doesn't interact with the page, your servers that will, like, process the purchase or make the transaction, if the user is just browsing, it's just serving HTML on edge servers, which is really, really fast, right? So I see that that kind of use case also lends itself for partial hydration. I would love to explore in the in the short future the ability to extract islands and it's going to be less automatic. You, you will probably need to specify which components will be used as islands and then do server-side rendering with the same technique where you can have dynamic content and in, inject islands on this dynamic content that might be user-based content, right? But your servers are rendering the page, and then you're only shipping the JavaScript for the islands, which will become interactive. So basically, get the same of both the best of both worlds, where you have dynamic content, but the JavaScript that you shipped is only the the JavaScript that is necessary for the interactive bits of the page, right? And I think if you get that, then you can use it for virtually any application because you could even render database-powered content and use this partial hydration technique, right? But, right, because even though it's partially hydrated, doesn't mean you're not interactive and fetching from a database and performing all the normal SPA-type things. Exactly, yeah. That, that would be like the server-side rendered version of EOS, which doesn't exist yet. But I, I think it's certainly possible, and it's something that I will explore in probably two months from now. Awesome. I will put that on my calendar. Uh, <laughs> awesome. So, Maximo, is there anything else that you feel we need to know before we get started working with Eels? Or how do, how do we get started with writing our own site using this tool? 
Well, uh, right now, if you just want to try it out, there's a quick command for it. So you just do npm init yields add next if you want to get the latest, and and then you already it will automatically create an application for you. You can also select if you want to use items from a particular framework, such as Svelte, SolidJS, or React. It will automatically set that up for you. And then you can just run, you know, npm install, npm run dev, and get started with it. I have plans to to create specific starters, like let's say a blog starter or uh, an e-commerce starter and that that kind of thing. Uh, but for now, it's just bare bones. And what you get is uh, a two-page setup with the starter. And also, if you want to see a more full-fledged example, there's a demo with the with a, a blog, which is the official view blog, but ported to to Eels uh, instead of WordPress. So that that's something that anyone can use as an example or to build their their own blog. Same thing with the documentation site. O- although documentation sites is not it's something that I think is very well covered by WordPress. I think it it already provides everything you need out of the box. While Eels is more flexible and it's meant to be used uh, as a framework rather than a... I think Bitpress already gives you, you know, there's a default template, there, there's default behavior, default components that you get. So, for example, it's harder to build a blog from Bitpress, but it's easier to build a documentation side with Bitpress. <laughs> so folks that want to document their projects, I think they will have an easier time using Bitpress, I think. I'm using it for eels, just for dog fooding purposes, right? So it's where I get to try the the latest additions. But you know, it's it's very flexible in the sense that anything that you can build with Vue or with Nuxt that is not server side rendered, you can build with eels. And if you're familiar with Vue, it should be very familiar because it's just plain Vue components, Vue router powered. Everything should be very familiar, I think. Yeah, speaking of routing and view router, there's one little thing I noticed that I thought was pretty cool is that, you know, the like with almost any of these static site builders, uh, the routing is determined based on folder structure. So there's like a pages directory under your source and then anything you there creates a page. But it's cool that you can use the same the same file same component as different pages, you know, with dynamic parameters. So just using the the alias uh, option in the front matter, I thought that was pretty cool. That gives that definitely gives some more flexibility than okay, so I got to do the same thing in two different pages. So I got to, I suppose you could do a separate components and import them. But if you don't even have to do that, then that that certainly gives you some more flexibility. Yeah, right. You don't even need to import it because uh, Eels gives you gives you automatic imports just for convenience. In the future, we, it, it might also automatically import the main APIs, which is UsePage, which is uh, the API that gives you access to front matter, metadata for the file, and uh, page prop. But for now, it's just an import. Um, that's the only thing that you need to import usually. But yeah, the uh, the view page, I would say, gives you a lot of flexibility because that's also where you're going to inject custom JavaScript without bounding it to a component you know, without any additional runtime. And you can, you can choose to have a parent layout. Layouts can have parent layouts as well. Uh, there's a very declarative syntax for that. But most of the time, you, you feel like you're just using view instead of this custom thing. You can use props as usual. And yeah, 
access to your router, I think that's something that comes from this great plugin that is using underneath called Beat Plugin Pages, which I think also works for React. But that plugin is what generates the the view router route. And one of the one of the things that I picked up from it is that you can specify a custom path for a file. So while you get this file system routing out of the box, you can also steer away from it uh, whenever you want. And like you said, use aliases. Then you can use the the actual path of the page to render content differently if you wanted to. So it's like you have different options. For example, let's say that you want a different title, even though most of the content is the same. You can do that. Same component, just specifying aliases. It's going to be rendered per alias, right? So let's say I have an index page, but I also want it available as post. But in the post page, I'm going to do something slightly different. Yeah, you can totally do that without the need to abstract it into different components. But you know, it's like it's a balance. I think you can get too clever with that stuff. But using components, I think it's uh, is the easiest. Everyone can understand that. And also, you can you can reuse all your techniques from years of view development with this. There's everything works just the same. Oh, great! Thank you so much. Thank you I'm for having. Fighting with myself right now because I'm. This is so cool, and it's it's view based. I want to rewrite my blog again, but uh, maybe I'll find I, I, another project I think, to do that I think first. You only, get, <laughs> you only get one blog rewrite per year if you go over there. Oh, okay. Well, I'll wait until January then. Yeah, the internet police is going to find you. All right. Well, I'll hold off. But Maxima, this has been great. Thank you so much for going over all of this with us. Thank you for having me. It's my first podcast, so I'm not sure what I'm doing, but it was pretty fun. Oh, you're doing fine. At this point, we will move on to picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Picks are the part of the show where we share things we like with the community. They don't need to be programming related. So today I will start with Steve because I want to start out on the humorous note. Steve, do you have a pick for us today? Of course I have picks. Fabulous, fabulous dad jokes as always. So I'm actually going to increase my output by 50% and do three instead of two today just because they were so good, at least in my mind. So the other day, someone asked me what the ninth letter of the alphabet was. It was a complete guess, but I was right. Thank you. Thank you. A little delay there. Well, I got the I got the, the drum joke, so I'll, I might throw in some laughter, too. So my grandfather, you know, back in the, what, 50s and, well, actually a little later than that, was in a band. They called themselves the Hinges, and they got some notoriety because they opened for the doors. Back in the 80s, my brother used to say he always thought the cars and the doors should have merged and called themselves the car doors. And then finally, the other day I was out and about and wanted to go. I went into, you know, like a little bar actually that um, had some Wi-Fi and wanted to use it. And of course, they had a password on it. And so I asked him what the Wi-Fi password was. And he says, you need to buy a drink first. I said, okay, I'll have a Coke. He said, Pepsi, okay? Yeah, how much is that? Three bucks. Give him the money. There you go. So what's the Wi-Fi password? You need to buy a drink first. No spaces, all lowercase. Thank you. Thank you. So those are my uh, picks for the day. Speaking of cars and doors, do you know why a chicken coop has two doors? I have in the past, but no, I don't recall. Because if it had four doors, it would be a chicken sedan. Yeah, chicken sedan. Yes. Okay. I heard that coming. Yes. I knew I'd heard that one somewhere. (laughs) 
for those who can't see the video, Massimo's over there holding his head going, what have I done? <laughs> All right. Maximo, do you have a pick for us today? Yeah, I would like, like to share this cool project uh, recently open source called Uno CSS, which is like this engine to generate CSS where you can provide your custom rules. But I think it's pretty powerful. So I'm excited to see where this is going to go. But you could use it to create your, your own utility CSS framework or recreate the, the very familiar tachyons or tailwind APIs. What I like about it is the flexibility. So if I were building a design system and I wanted to use utilities CSS for some reason, I think this has everything that I, I would need. So yeah, that's my pick. So, so Lindsay, what's the first thing that came to your mind when you heard Uno CSS other than one? Um, I don't know what the Uno card game. You know, I grew up playing that all the time, all the different colors and stuff. So, you know, it's funny. You know, we used to talk about JavaScript fatigue and and how it seemed that there was always a new JavaScript framework coming out. You know, a new pace anymore. It's, we're almost getting a CSS fatigue because it's always new CSS frameworks. I'm seeing, you know. First you got Tailwind, then you got Windy, and now you got Uno CSS. And ironically, all of they seem to be mimicking Tailwind or integrating with Tailwind. I, I know that Anthony Fu's initial blog post about Uno CSS also noted that you could bring in Bootstrap. Like there was a there was a pre-built template for using for generating Bootstrap styles with this too, uh, which I thought was really interesting. So it's expanding out of pure utility and just letting you build a CSS framework. Oh, I forgot he's part of the V team. He is. Yeah, I mean, you could use it in very different ways because you have full access to the engine. Unlike, I, for example, Windy CSS is very flexible, but it's intended to to be used in a in a very similar way to to Tailwind. While this one is an engine, and you can do whatever you want with it, and I think it can be really really powerful. It has some experiments within it. For example, utility first views views single file component scope CSS. So I'm pretty sure there's going to be interesting stuff coming out of this. Yeah, one thing I we need to do a whole episode on this. But one thing I really liked in the article, and I guess this is a feature coming to Windy CSS as well, is that instead of having a single class attribute on your your HTML element, you can specify different attributes for each thing that you're targeting. So if you're doing a grid, or not grid, let's do flex. You can just say flex equals and then do all of your styles that are related to flex right right there. Yeah, And it almost cool. feels like we're going, oh, go ahead. That's called attributify mode. It was added to Wendy CSS uh, a few months ago. Before you okay. go on, just a quick comment. While it feels powerful and very convenient, just a reminder that it might not be valid HTML, right? Because certain elements shouldn't have certain attributes. That's the only downside. But you're feel feel free to do whatever you want, right? No one is going to. If right. the browser renders it, it's fine. The W3C is not going to come and take down your website for exactly. having invalid yeah. HTML. I hope. I hope. One one thing that I thought was really interesting with that approach, though, is it felt very much like what we used to do before CSS was standardized, where we right. could specify like certain attributes on the HTML. Yeah. So so it's almost like taking the two concepts of a more more declarative API for for styling and the benefits of CSS and putting the two together. And it feels really natural. Like I For sure. My wife has been learning HTML and CSS and she sometimes she's not she's asking me why is it like this? Why is CSS over here and HTML over there? And it's just because of how things evolved. But maybe if we reevaluated how things evolved, we would come to this 
conclusion that looks a little more like what Uno and Windy are doing. Yeah, I agree. There are there are benefits to to this approach. I would love it if at some point, and you know, BJS is so powerful for transforms. I would love to be able to use utility first frameworks like that, and then have your build process automatically uh, replace all these uh, styling markers, you could say, and generate the the most efficient rule-based approach, S- similar to what Facebook was doing. Uh, I'm not sure if they are still doing, but basically the framework is going to split each CSS rule that is used on the site, is going to assign it a dynamic class name, and then it's going to use the, those names on, on whatever elements are using those classes. So for example, let's say that I have a black background and a red uh, text color, and that might be, I might specify it uh, as a single CSS class, but then the framework is going to deduplicate that into two CSS classes. So basically your your CSS, the amount of CSS on the page very quickly hits uh, a stop and, and stops growing unless you keep adding different rules. So it, instead of get, getting this exponential size of CSS as the site grows, it just, it's like lower rhythmic and you can keep adding different combinations as soon as you're using the same text size for example you're not going to be adding any css to it which is pretty cool we'd love to see an exploration on that absolutely okay i will go ahead with my picks now and we'll have to do another episode on uno css to dive more into this there's so much here so i have two picks today well two and a half picks today so first for longtime listeners i have been reading the expanse series through audiobooks And I recently finished book number six, Babylon's Ashes. And if you have not read The Expanse and you're into science fiction, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It has been so much fun. The plot has just continued to build up and build up. And I I am absolutely enjoying this series. It's probably one of my favorite sci-fi right now, if not my favorite series overall. The half pick is, if you are interested in, in The Expanse, The final book, Leviathan Falls, is coming out November 30th this year. So if you haven't read them before, read them very quick. No, just kidding. If you haven't read The The Expanse before, definitely recommend it. The last one's coming out soon. So if you are familiar with it already, then go for it. My second pick, and this is specifically because we were talking about CSS and interesting frameworks. If you are using Elm, you probably have heard of it before, but there's a, a library in Elm called Elm CSS which allows you to define CSS properties in a very strongly typed way, similar to, to what you were describing, Maxima, where, you, where it generates the, the class names for you, and you're just applying CSS attributes directly onto the elements. So it creates a style sheet for you that is as performant as, as it's been developed for. I'm assuming it's very performant. And it's been really fun to work with in the past, and I've been working with it recently as well. It's just so easy to get in there and... I love that it doesn't let you write invalid CSS by default. You can you can create your own accidental mistakes that it will let through because it doesn't know everything and it lets you write your own stuff. But if you're just using its default methods and functions that it provides you with, you're going to write valid CSS 100% of the time. So definitely recommend checking that out if you're interested in Elm and you're interested in writing better CSS. We'll make sure there's links to everything in the show notes. Maximo, as we wrap up, how can people find you online if they want to learn more about what you're doing or they want to learn more about ELAs specifically? Sure. 
you can you can follow me on Twitter, Maximo Mussini, with, with a double S. We'll share the links later. And you can also follow news about EOS in particular by following the EOS JS uh, Twitter Twitter account. Uh, so it's I L E S J S. Also, recently added, it was already there, but I I've documented and added a few examples of how to create modules in EOS. So if you want to give it a try and see how flexible it can be, now it's the time. I I've also added a module start so that you all get you know, and I set up out of the box that will work for most users. So that's it. And also, if you are trying EOS or or would just like to know more about it, you can find me on the BitJS Discord. We have a, an EOS channel there on the frameworks section. Same thing if you're using BitRuby, we have a Rails channel uh, on the backend section of the BitJS Discord. Excellent. Thank you. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been excellent. Thank really you. enjoyed that this conversation. Yeah. I hope you all enjoyed this as well. If you'd like to hear more, you can find us at viewsonview.com or on Twitter at viewsonview. You can also find us on devchat.tv. Uh, you can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. You can find Steve on Twitter at Wonder95. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you again next week. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.